0: My name is Miguel de Serpa Suarez, and I am the Under Secretary General for Legal Affairs and the United Nations Legal Council. This year the United Nations is turning 75 and I feel honored to be delivering a lecture for you on 75 years of international lawmaking at the United Nations to mark the occasion. For 75 years, since the Charter of the United Nations was signed in San Francisco on the 26th June 1945, the organization has been placed at the center of international lawmaking. It can be considered both as a place where international law is discussed, made and interpreted by states, and as an actor with its own international legal personality, voice and practice, engaged in the creation and implementation of international law. This lecture outlines the extraordinary contribution of the United Nations to the development, codification and implementation of international law in branches ranging from the law of treaties to the legal principles governing the protection and preservation of the marine environment, criminal responsibility grave violations of international humanitarian law. It pays particular attention to the areas of international law that the work of the United Nations Office of Legal Affairs, established in 1946, has directly contributed to. The Charter of the United Nations is itself the most fundamental contribution made by the Member States of the United Nations to the international legal order. And with the remarkable provision in Article 103 of the Supremacy of the Charter over other international obligations, the first building blocks of a new international legal order were laid. The key provisions of this new legal order, such as the prohibition of the use of force, the curbing of nuclear proliferation and the role of the Security Council, is the maintenance of international peace and security, have succeeded in avoiding the repetition of all-out global war. The legal order that has emerged from the charter has also paved the way for the creation of entirely new areas of international law such as the law of international development, international human rights law and international environmental law. I will discuss first how the United Nations has contributed to the codification of the foundational infrastructure of the international legal order as well as the development of the multilateral treaty framework that underpins the crucial elements of this legal order. I will then address two specific areas in which the making of international law at the United Nations has been particularly successful and continues to this day the law of the sea and the law of international business. I will then turn to the normative and interpretive role of the United Nations as an actor in its own right, specifically in relation to peacekeeping, uh, international criminal responsibility, the privileges and immunities of United Nations officials and their criminal accountability. I will then look ahead to the next 25 years and discuss some current and future issues where the United Nations can contribute to preserving and strengthening the international legal order. Now, starting with the foundational infrastructure of the international legal order, I will begin begin by discussing how the United Nations has contributed to the codification of the foundational infrastructure of the international legal order. It took the shocking realities of Second World War to highlight the importance of written international law in increasing legal certainty and ensuring peaceful international relations. The drafters of the Charter of the United Nations included Article 13, Paragraph 1a, which has proven to be the crucible of international lawmaking at the United Nations over the past 75 years. Now this provision states that, and I quote, The General Assembly shall initiate studies and make recommendations for the purpose of encouraging the progressive development of international law and its codification. It is under this provision that the major foundational developments establishing the infrastructure of international law and international relations have been achieved, and these developments have included the law of treaties, the law of international responsibility, the law of diplomatic and consular relations, major advances in international criminal law, international environmental law, and the series of treaties addressing international terrorism, to name just a few. And many of these foundational developments have taken place through collaboration between the Sixth Committee of the General Assembly, the Legal Committee, established by the Assembly at its first session in 1946, and of course the International Law Commission, established as a subsidiary organ of the Assembly in 1947. The Sixth Committee consists of the legal experts of the member state's permanent missions in New York, who present the legal and policy views of the governments they represent. The Commission consists of members who possess recognized expertise and qualifications in international law, elected by the Assembly, to carry out their functions independently. Now, the best known of these foundational developments is the 1969 Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, which lies at the heart of international law and international relations among States, regulating such fundamental questions as the conclusion and entry into force of treaties their binding force, invalidity, and termination. For five decades, the Convention, its travaux préparatoires, uh, and the work of the International Law Commission have provided the lens through which States, judges, legal practitioners, and scholars all over the world address treaty questions. The Convention has 116 States parties, uh, as of today, but its reach and influence are significantly greater, with much of the Convention reflecting customary international law. Other pivotal and foundational treaties produced through the collaborative efforts of the International Law Commission and the Sixth Committee include the 1961 Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations and the 1963 Vienna Convention on Consular Relations. These conventions are also at the center of international relations. Additionally, states have adopted a number of important conventions on the basis of the International Law Commission's outputs, for example, on the reduction of statelessness, special missions, the protection of international protected persons, including diplomatic agents, and international criminal law. The Commission's output has also on occasion served as inspiration for regional agreements and while many of the foundational treaties were uh, being adopted in the 60s and 70s, the international legal order itself was undergoing fundamental changes. Now the 75-year lifetime of the United Nations has marked the evolution of international law from a system applica- applicable among 57 member states to a universal and multilateral legal order in which 193 member states and two non-member observer states from all corners of the globe participate in the words of judge yusuf president of the international court of justice this and i quote represents a profound societal change involving the emergence of a diverse body of actors, each with their own culture, customs, and legal traditions. And these changes lay the foundation for the formation of a universal international legal order. End of quote. Now, these profound changes have contributed to the increasingly challenging task of codifying foundational rules of international law. This is illustrated by the International Law Commission's 2001 Articles on the Responsibility of States for Internationally Wrongful Acts, which concern such foundational matters as knowing what are the consequences of violations of international law, to whom responsibility is owed, and what forms reparation should take. Even though the Sixth Committee has been unable to achieve consensus for nearly 20 uh, years on the need to negotiate the Articles in the Convention, they equally form an essential part of the architecture of international law. No legal order, including that of international law, can exist coherently without a system of responsibility. The articles have been widely applied in practice by the International Court of Justice and other courts and tribunals and are regarded in many of their aspects as reflecting customary international law. Now I would like to turn into the development of the multilateral uh, treaty framework. Um, And in this aspect uh, the United Nations has contributed to the development of the International Treaty Framework both in its role as a forum for multilateral treaty making and in its role as an actor uh, in this process. The establishment of a comprehensive and robust multilateral treaty framework has constituted one of the major contributions of the organization to an international order based on the rule of law. Over time, treaties have grown in number and complexity addressing disarmament, trade and transport, human rights, gender equality, the fight against terrorism or the preservation of the environment, amongst many other issues. They have contributed to the purposes laid down in Article 1 of the Charter by seeking to maintain international peace and security develop friendly relations among nations and achieve international cooperation. They also provide a framework for solving problems of an economic, social, cultural or humanitarian character and the basis for promoting and encouraging respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms as well as in adapting to new challenges such as international criminal justice and climate change. The Secretary General is the world's largest depository of multilateral treaties, around 600 having been deposited during the 75 years of the United Nations. Importantly, the depository practice in the operation of these treaties has been significant in defining the role of depositaries of multilateral treaties and has left an indelible impact on the law of treaties, both conventional and customary. So when the 1969 Vienna Convention codified and to some extent developed the law of treaties between states, its articles 76 and 77, which established the role and functions of depositaries, were inspired by an examination of the practices of the Secretary-General. These were later mirrored by articles 77 and 78 of the 1986 Vienna Convention concerning treaties involving international organizations, thus confirming the general acceptance of the definition of the depositary's role for all multilateral treaties. The Secretary-General's depository practice has shaped the law of treaties, in particular with respect to reservations. Following the practice of the Secretary-General of the League of Nations, the Secretary-General had traditionally applied the system of unanimity by uh, not accepting in deposit an instrument containing a reservation until it had been established that none of the other parties objected. Now this changed when uh, the 1948 Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide led to certain reservations and objections thereto, some of those being contested. The Secretary-General, as depositary, brought the issue to the General Assembly, which in turn requested an advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice and invited the International Law Commission to study the question of reservations to multilateral conventions. In this connection, In its 1951 advisory opinion, the Court introduced a test considered to be revolutionary. The test consisted of assessing the compatibility of reservations with the object and purpose of the Convention, and the General Assembly requested the Secretary-General to conform his practice to the advisory opinion in respect of the Genocide Convention and in respect of future United Nations conventions. Now this approach was later codified in Articles 19 to 23 of the 1969 Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. The rules of the Law of Treaties concerning reservations have continued to develop through the Secretary General's practice subsequent to the adoption of the Vienna Convention and this practice was drawn on extensively by the International Law Commission in developing its 2011 Guide to Practice on Reservations to Treaties. This is the case, for example, with respect to late reservations, where the practice since the late 70s has been to circulate the reservation to all States concerned, giving them a period of time to object. And this deviates from Article 19 of the 1969 Vienna Convention, which requires reservations to be formulated upon deposit of the instrument of consent to be bound. Nevertheless, this practice, initiated by the Secretary-General in the late 70s, was codified by the International Law Commission in its guide. I will now address two specific areas in which the making of international law at the United Nations has been particularly successful and continues to this day, the Law of the Sea and the Law of International Business. And I will start with the Law of the Sea. The vital functions of the United Nations as an international lawmaking forum and of the Secretary-General as a facilitator of the treaty-making process is exemplified by the progressive development and codification of the Law of the Sea. The ocean is critical to a healthy environment, food security, transportation, and economic development. It presents a paradigm of the global commons where space and resources are shared and where challenges can only be overcome by cooperation. In the past 75 years, the United Nations has played and continues to play a central role in the development and implementation of the Law of the Sea with the 1982 United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, the UNCLOS, at the pinnacle. UNCLOS today has 168 states parties. Now regarded as a constitution for the oceans and a historic milestone in the development of the Law of the Sea, UNCLOS brought together existing rules of customary international law and settled issues such as the breadth of states' maritime zones. It also features several significant innovations, including the relation to the exclusive economic zone, a regime for the governance of the international seabed area, navigational rights, the protection and preservation of the marine environment, marine scientific research, and dispute settlement. UNCLOS is supplemented by two implementing agreements. The Part 11 agreement was negotiated through informal consultations convened by the Secretary-General and addressed the concern of certain states relating to the deep-seabed mining provisions of UNCLOS that were preventing them from becoming states parties. The United Nations Fish Stocks Agreement was negotiated at the conference convened by the General Assembly. This agreement sets out detailed regulations for the conservation and management of certain straddling and highly migratory fish stocks as envisaged by UNCLOS. Now UNCLOS has also made an extremely significant contribution to the maintenance of international peace and security since its adoption bringing a stable order to the ocean by regulating all aspects of its uses and resources. It promotes legal certainty by setting out agreed limits to the maritime zones in which states enjoy sovereignty or sovereign rights and jurisdiction, and it determines how those areas are to be delimited and the rights, including navigational rights, of other states therein. And regarding areas beyond national jurisdiction, that is, the high seas and the seabed and ocean floor and subsoil thereof beyond the limits of national jurisdiction, referred to as the area, Ankel stipulates that these are to be used exclusively for peaceful purposes. It recognizes the freedom of the high seas and provides that the area and its resources are the common heritage of humankind, with all mineral exploration and exploitation activities to be carried out under the auspices of an autonomous international organization, the International Seabed Authority. Now, while in 1982 the concept of sustainable development had yet to fully emerge, provisions of UNCLOS address many elements there are today found in the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development, particularly Sustainable Development Goal 14 on Life Below Water. For instance, consideration of the equitable and efficient use of marine resources permeates the text of UNCLOS. And moreover, the recognition that the area is the common heritage of humankind entails that the exploration and exploitation of its mineral resources must be carried out for the benefit of humankind as a whole, as regulated by international seabed authorities' mining code. Enclos more generally takes into account the special interests and needs of developing countries, particularly the least developed landlocked or geographically disadvantaged among them, including by providing rights of sea access to surplus marine living resources and to participate in marine scientific research as well as a legal framework for the development and transfer of marine technology. And the General Assembly, processes related to UNCLOS have been incubators for normative development, giving impetus to, for example, the decision to convene an intergovernmental conference to elaborate the text of an international legally binding instrument on the conservation and sustainable use of marine biological diversity of areas beyond national jurisdiction. Under this process, states are currently negotiating four main issues. Marine genetic resources, including questions on the sharing of benefits, measures such as area-based management tools, including marine protected areas, environmental impact assessments, and capacity building and the transfer of marine technology. Since the problem of ocean space uh, are uh, closely interrelated and uh, must be considered as a whole, cooperation and coordination at national, regional and global levels remain essential in order to achieve the integrated management and peaceful and sustainable use of the ocean. I would like now uh, to turn to the development of international business law. And this is another fundamental and often overlooked aspect of codification and international lawmaking at the United Nations. Concerns the international and transnational legal framework of international trade. The contribution of the United Nations has extended beyond trade promotion and facilitation to cover the law of international trade, motivated by the belief that international trade cooperation among states is an important factor in the maintenance of international peace and security, and convinced that the United Nations should play a more active role towards reducing removing obstacles to the flow of international trade and thereby furthering the interests of all peoples and particularly those of developing countries, the General Assembly established in 1966 the United Nations Commission on International Trade Law with a mandate to promote uh, the progressive harmonization and unification of the law Of international trade. Now the ensuring contribution of the United Nations to creating a legal framework favorable to international trade covers a wide range of areas of commercial law and has profoundly changed the legal landscape. Dispute settlement and international contracts are two examples. I will start with the dispute settlement. Two landmark treaties in the field of international commercial dispute settlement have been concluded 60 years apart from each other. And this is the 1958 Convention on the Recognition and Enforcement of Foreign Arbitral Awards, better known as the New York Convention, and the 2018 United Nations Convention on International Settlement Agreements resulting from mediation, known as the Singapore Convention on Mediation. Both treaties aim at giving effect and finality to the outcome of the dispute settlement processes with which they are concerned, namely arbitral awards and mediated agreements respectively. The New York Convention establishes a framework for recognizing and enforcing foreign arbitral awards and for giving effect to arbitration agreements concluded between commercial parties. As uh, at today, 163 states have become party to it, one of the reasons for its widespread adoption being the inclusive drafting process made possible under the auspices of the United Nations, which was undertaken with the aim of guaranteeing that the framework established by the Convention would be compatible with the various legal traditions. The New York Convention has paved the way for the preparation and adoption of a comprehensive legal framework for international commercial arbitration, in which UNCITRAL has played an important role. And following a similar path, UNCITRAL, which oversees the promotion, interpretation and application of the New York Convention, has developed a comprehensive legal framework for international commercial mediation which culminated in the finalization of the draft Singapore Convention on Mediation which was submitted to the General Assembly for adoption in 2018. Now the conclusion of the Singapore Convention on Mediation is particularly noteworthy because the enforcement of settlement agreements resulting from mediation between commercial parties is approached differently under national legal systems which some, with some applying ordinary contract law and others laying down specific legal procedures based on the view that such agreements are quasi-judicial in nature. So only a pragmatic approach based on Ancetral's working methods characterized by consensus, inclusiveness and transparency, transparency could allow a treaty to be prepared that bridges conceptual and at times dogmatic differences between legal systems. It is hoped that the Singapore Convention on Mediation, which entered into force on the 12th September this year, 2020, and has secured over 50 signatures in its first year alone, will lead to the universal recognition of mediation as a powerful, efficient, and non-confrontational method for settling trade and investment disputes. I would uh, like now to talk about international contracts and regarding international contracts the vast majority of cross-border commercial transactions relate to the sale of goods and the idea of achieving a global consensus on sales law made its way to UNCITRAL's work program at its first session in 1968 and this work would eventually lead to the adoption in 1980 of the United Nations Convention on Contracts for the International Sale of Goods, also known as CISG, which now has almost 100 states parties. Now, The main goals of the CISG are predictability and flexibility, while the comprehensive set of default rules contained in the Convention offer detailed guidance. The principle of party autonomy allows the parties to tailor those default rules to the needs of each transaction. Unlike most domestic laws, the CISG was specifically drafted to meet the needs of international trade with transportation and payment logistics as well as trade practices taken into account. And the drafters of the CISG selected from each legal system the rules that were best adapted to long-distance and transnational trade and developed new rules when existing ones proved inadequate for international transactions. For instance, the CISG limits termination to cases of fundamental breach, that is, a breach that substantially deprives the aggrieved party of its accepted, expected entitlement. The CISG has become the de facto uniform law of cross-border sales in large trading regions, such as the European Union, the Southern Common Market, and North America under the recent United States-Mexico-Canada agreement. It lies at the core of a system of legal instruments that support international commercial transactions. Ancetral has also prepared a suite of legislative texts to support transactions in an electronic environment. These texts remove legal obstacles to the use of electronic means without amending contract law but adapting it to the extent needed. In particular, the ancestral model law on electronic commerce, which is the most widely adopted text in this field, and the United Nations Convention on the Use of Electronic Communications in International Contracts complemented the CISG with both general principles of e-commerce, law and specific provisions on electronic contracting. I'll now turn to the normative and interpretive role of the United Nations. And, as I anticipated at the beginning of this lecture, During its 75 years of existence, the United Nations has not only served as a place for the codification of essential elements of the international legal order, it has also directly contributed to international lawmaking through the development of the institutional framework. The organization has been constantly adjusting and developing its mandate in line with its purposes and functions. As specified or implied in the Charter. The legal foundation that the Charter provides has been progressively nourished, sometimes through the interpretation of the existing normative framework, sometimes through the creation of new norms. Now, in the first aspect, the United Nations has played a key role in the development of international criminal law, both through the codification and development of substantive norms, as well as through the establishment of an institutional framework for their enforcement. And the organization's efforts to seek accountability for international crimes gained renewed impetus in the early 90s with the establishment of the International Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, the ICTY, the first international criminal tribunal since the Nuremberg and Tokyo war crimes tribunals. In establishing the ICTY, the United Nations played a seminal role in the creation of the contemporary architecture of international criminal justice, as well as the establishment of the normative global culture of criminal accountability. Since the establishment of the ICTY, a number of criminal tribunals have been established by the United Nations or through the negotiation with the United Nations, including the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, the ICTR, the Special Court for Sierra Leone, the Extraordinary Chambers in the Courts of Cambodia, and the Special Tribunal for Lebanon. Now, these United Nations and United Nations assisted criminal tribunals. Have laid the groundwork for an expansive development of international criminal law through their statutes, rules of procedure and evidence, and jurisprudence. The Office of the Legal Counsel in the Office of Legal Affairs has played a key role in this regard, both through the drafting of some of the tribunal statutes, in particular the ICTY statute, and through the negotiation of relevant agreements with member states for their creation. The establishment of the ICTY and the ICTR lent impetus to the establishment of the International Criminal Court which came to fruition in 1998 with the adoption of the Rome Statute at the Diplomatic Conference organized under the auspices of the United Nations. The applicability of international obligations has also uh, been expanded since 1945 through the organization's normative actions. And this is particularly notable in the case of international humanitarian law, international human rights law, and international refugee law, which have progressively become part of the United Nations normative framework. For example, the Secretary-General in 1999 issued a bulletin for the purpose of setting out fundamental principles and rules of international humanitarian law applicable to United Nations forces conducting operations under United Nations command and control when they are actively engaged in situations of armed conflict as combatants. And this bulletin confirmed a long-standing practice which dates back at least to 1962 and an opinion given by the then Legal Council. The Legal Council further advised in 2008 that even though the Security Council had considered that joint operations between MONUSCO, that is the United Nations stabilization mission in the Democratic Republic of the Congo and the armed forces of the Democratic Republic of the Congo should be planned in accordance with international humanitarian, human rights and refugee law. Compliance by MONUSCO with international humanitarian, human rights and refugee law was required, both as a matter of customary international law and the charter. Interestingly, interestingly, in subsequent resolutions, uh, the Security Council replaced should with shall. And this is a very good example of what I was trying to say. Now, beyond developing its own institutional and normative frameworks, the United Nations has during these past 75 years become a key actor in the interpretation of international law. Now the organization's interpretive role derived naturally from the need to react to specific situations which had not been env- envisaged or addressed in detail in the charter. So, in the absence of judicial review or authoritative guidance from the General Assembly or the Security Sem- uh, Council. It has been the role and responsibility of those in charge of operationalizing uh, mandates, in particular the Secretariat, to interpret them. And the approach to interpretation taken by the Office of Legal Affairs draws on the rules for the interpretation of treaties, as codified in Article 31 to 33 of the 1969 and 1986 Vienna Conventions. Now, focusing again on peacekeeping, some representative examples can be highlighted. In a legal opinion in 2003, the legal counsel stated that the question whether Security Council Resolution 1509 of 2003, establishing the United Nations mission in Liberia, had authorized the mission to use armed force to discharge any of its mandated tasks, and not just in self-defense, depended on, and I quote, the ordinary and natural meaning which was to be given to its terms when they were read in the context of the resolution as a whole and in the light of its object and purpose and against the background of the discussions leading to and the circumstances of its adoption." End of quote. Together, these elements led him to conclude that authorization to use force had been given. In 2008, the legal council interpreted the mandate of the United Nations mission in the Democratic Republic of Congo to ensure, I'm quoting, the protection of civilians under imminent threat of physical violence and, of quote, as set out in Security Council resolutions, namely. 1756 of 2007 and 1856 of 2008 to encompass not only the mounting of reactive operations but also proactive operations. Now, in support, the legal counsel drew on the general principle of international law, elementary considerations of humanity, affirmed by the International Court of Justice in the Corfu Channel case. I will now discuss criminal accountability of United Nations officials and experts on mission. The international lawmaking and interpreting role of the United Nations is further informed by the legal practice of the Secretariat in relation to specific areas of its operations. One such area of particular importance relates to the criminal accountability of United Nations officials and experts on mission. In Articles 104 and 105 of the Charter, the United Nations was accorded such legal capacity and such privileges and immunities as are necessary for fulfilling its purposes. These provisions were further elaborated in the 1946 Convention on the Privileges and Immunities of the United Nations, the General Convention as we call it. Now, while the privileges and immunities of the United Nations are intended to enable the organization and its officials to fulfill the purposes of the United Nations, the immunities of the United Nations, including the immunity from legal process enjoyed by United Nations officials or experts on mission, do not extend to shielding from accountability those who have engaged in criminal conduct. the Secretary General and the organization's member states have recognized the importance of ensuring criminal accountability for such conduct. And this recognition has prompted legislative action by the General Assembly and the adoption of new procedures by the Secretary General for ensuring the criminal accountability of UN officials and experts on mission. Now against this background, in 2007 through its Resolution 62-63, the General Assembly created a two-fold mechanism to ensure accountability. First, the Assembly strongly urged all states to assert jurisdiction over crimes committed by their nationals while serving as United Nations officials or experts on mission. Second, the Assembly requested the Secretary General to bring credible allegations that revealed that a crime may have been committed by United Nations officials and experts or missions to the attention of the states against whose nationals such allegations are made. Accordingly, the Secretary-General's obligation to refer to national authorities matters for the criminal accountability of such UN personnel requires that the allegations of criminal conduct concerned be considered to be credible. The organization considers this threshold to be met whenever the allegations are supported by investi- investigative findings. And as of 30 June 2020, and since the adoption of Resolution 62-63 and subsequent resolutions on the same topic, the Secretary-General has referred to national authorities 219 cases of credible allegations of criminal conduct. Now, while United Nations personnel may be held accountable for all types of crimes, in recent years, cases of sexual exploitation and abuse have been the objective of um, renewed attention and focus in the aftermath of incidents involving United Nations and non-United Nations personnel in the Central African Republic and elsewhere. Now, in 2017, the Secretary General adopted a new approach to protection from sexual exploitation and abuse by placing the victims at the center of the organization's efforts to improve its response to allegations of this nature. These efforts have contributed to an evolving international legal practice concerning the accountability of personnel of international organizations. And now, let's talk a little bit about the future and the next 25 years. Since 1945, the United Nations has demonstrated its unique role both as a place where international law is developed and as an actor directly participating in the making and interpretation of international law. The examples that I have referred to in this lecture constitute a tribute to the flexibility and adaptability of the organization, but also to the commitment of its member states to multilateralism, including in critical fields that nowadays form the foundational infrastructure of international relations. And what of the next 25 years? Now it is common to enumerate here the usual culprits, the ostensible general crisis of multilateralism, the reluctance of states to engage in codification of international law as they used to in a past golden, some, somewhat mythological age, and. Um, very real crisis of the funding of the United Nations system organizations. This is usually followed by an ever-expanding list of long-waited and never-accomplished results in various international lawmaking projects, spanning from the definition of terrorism to complete nuclear disarmament and the way to more doctrinal issues such as the ever-elusive Convention on State Responsibility codification of international law, the agit goals, ended sometimes in the past 50 years and may not be coming back. Now, international law as a language employed by states to interact with one another and achieve international cooperation must thus necessarily be in decline. And one aspect of this criticism is perhaps linked to an overreach in our expectations. If the principle of sovereign equality of states is taken seriously, as envisaged in Article 2, Paragraph 1 of the Charter, then any assessment of progress in international lawmaking must take realistic account of the panoply of divergent positions of member states on several key issues. There may also uh, come a point at which excessive claims regarding the scope of the law's protection for example, in the human rights context, may itself undermine compliance by states with their obligations. Now, sometimes what is perceived as a crisis of multilateralism is simply lack of consensus among member states, which is an entirely physiological situation, and precisely what multilateralism is meant to accomplish. So I propose an alternative outlook leading to more optimistic predictions. The charter established the United Nations as the main international forum dedicated inter alia to achieve international cooperation in solving international problems of an economic, social, cultural or humanitarian character. These problems at the global level continue to abound. International law will be an essential tool to address what may be two of the most crucial issues of the next 25 years, our relationship with the planet we inhabit and our relatively new abilities to interact with one another or even wage war in cyberspace. Now in relation to the environment, the United Nations is now raising awareness and preparing the relevant legal framework to fight climate change and its direct causes and consequences, deforestation the degradation of the atmosphere, impacts on the oceans, and sea level rise. And this is considered an absolute priority by the Secretary-General and the United Nations bodies, including the International Law Commission. In, in 2019, so the International Law Commission established an open-ended study group on the topic of sea level rise in international law which will consider a number of important questions including, with respect to the law of the sea, the potential effects of shifting baselines on maritime zones, the exercise of sovereign rights and maritime boundaries, issues concerning the continuity or loss of statehood, and questions surrounding the protection of persons affected and displaced by sea-level rise. Now, in relation to cybersecurity, the question of How to apply existing international legal frameworks such as international humanitarian law, the law on the use of force and international criminal law goes hand in hand with the possible development of new rules and international standards. The United Nations open-ended working group and the group of governmental experts on developments in the field of information and telecommunications in the context of international security have been tasked with taking relevant processes forward. So without doubt many more problems will arise in the coming 25 years, and some of which we cannot even imagine at present. So throughout the history of relations among peoples multilateralism has had its expansive and contracting phases, which are cyclical in nature At the time of this lecture, the world is in the midst of the worst pandemic for about a century. The urgency of international cooperation could not be more aptly illustrated or brought to the fore. It is in such times of emergency and apparent chaos that we have usually learned to come together as humankind.